Sorry, I just, I'm trying to get my brain out. My brain just went Ricky to Ricky to now Carl Landry. So it's I'm just getting my, pivot, swift my brain in the, in the right spot. Welcome to the Carl Landry Record Club, a music podcast from the rights to Ricky Sanchez. That is Mootloo and I am Spike. Good morning, my friend. How are you, man? L- long morning for you. Long morning, but good morning. Good morning. Just grinding away, podcasting away, talking into a microphone. But the, the Carl is always a a um, a respite for me. I love talking about music. I love our conversations. So so it should be fun. Absolutely. It's always a good time. And I, I feel like this is probably a more low-key uh, yeah. endeavor comparatively. Because, Ricky, there's more going on. There's more bells yeah. and whistles, you know? Yeah. I, I, th- this one, I, we're just talking about music we like. So on every Carl Landry, if it's your first Carl Landry Record Club, if it's not your first, if you're a regular listener, thank you for listening. If it's your first Carl Landry Record Club podcast, it's a music appreciation pod where we try to turn each other and you and you turn us on to music we haven't listened before. And uh, and the goal is to find something we like about it, even though it's not our uh, our favorite, maybe, at the, depending on what it is. But there's been so much discovery during this. It's been really great. So if you want to see every album that we've done so far, go to carlandryrecordclub.com and uh, there's an album list there. And if you'd like to suggest your own, if you're listening on Spotify, we've been getting more and more on Spotify. Right below the pod, you can see what is the next album we should do. Put it in there. If you're listening on Apple, put it in the Apple podcast reviews. Give us a five-star rating. Give us a review. Or just go to carlandryrecordclub.com and and, uh, shoot us an email. I did have one hater thing to get to in a little bit. Maybe we'll get to in between <laughs> stuff. I've just wanted your your uh, your your uh, opinion on it. So today, so we have a new thing. So we were, were always used to do two albums. Now we're doing two albums and a newer single in the last uh, be, year or two. In last the last year, or, year two. or two, yeah. Yeah, just just because most of our favorite favorites are from years past, which is fun to do, but but like, you know, part of this is as you get older, it gets harder and harder to discover new music. So it's sort of fun to be, to find something new. It challenges me. I think it challenges you to go listen to new things and then hopefully turns you on to something that you like. So today we've got two albums and one single. The single is from Gale and it's called- What a track, what a track. Great tune, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's called Everybody Hates Me. Now, you could be into current music and you're like, yes, dickhead. Gail is opening up for Taylor Swift. She's, oh, she's, is that the case? Yes. Oh, wow. Okay. Here, I'm thinking it's some like under the radar indie no. discovery or something. No. Because it has open- that vibe. It has that vibe. I mean, yeah. It, it, she's a, She and Paramore are opening up the stadium tour for Taylor Swift. So okay. she's okay. doing just fine. But it was new to me. It was new to you. So we'll talk about that. So I picked that. So it's my week. I picked an album and we have a listener album my album is 30 seconds to mars this is war from 2010 and the listener album is the stereophonics graffiti on the train which came out in 2013 and comes from angela who suggested it on spotify angela says album graffiti on the train artist stereophonics my favorite tracks are violins and tambourines graffiti on the train and in a moment thanks so so here we go. You know, we've never done the single first. Do you want to do the single first? Sure. Yeah, let's do that. I opened up Spotify the other morning when, actually, before I even left for work. So we're in the, the 4 a.m. hour at some point. And I looked at the the suggestions for you and I saw, I miss album covers, right? I mean, CDs, album covers were a big deal now so much. And I guess because of vinyl album covers are there, they're just not, not as like prescient as they were at, at one time. 
And I'm looking, I'm just looking through the names of the things it's suggesting to me. It suggests the new Manchester Orchestra EP, just things that are right down the road. And then I see Gail's face, Gail, who is this artist, and the song is Everybody Hates Me. But I see a little square that has her face and blood all over her face. <laughs> it's a it's a jarring thing to first look at. It's like once you really look at it, you're like, oh wow, okay, that is what it is. That's, that's and what it, it looks like anyway. It reminded me of, do you remember the Andrew W.K. album, uh, I Get Wet? Do you remember that album? Do you remember I, Party I, Hard by I rem- Andrew I'm, I remember, like I'm aware of him, but I don't really remember that music. Okay. Or, no, maybe I've heard it. I don't know. Wait, it's, hold on. Now I feel like I got to play you Party Hard. <laughs> I think you'll remember it. I loved that album. It was a lot of fun. I thought Andrew W.K. was great. Uh, here we go. It's time to party. We will party hard. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> this was Party Hard. But but the cover was similar. So the cover of that is Andrew W.K. in a white T-shirt looking like he had just been in a fight. There's blood all over his face. And, and it just reminded me of it. And I was like, oh, that's cool. It's fun to like listen to something because I enjoyed the visual, which is the only reason I listened to this. I had never heard of Gale and I, uh, and I did not like the visual or I liked the visual. And then I was like, I listened to it. And it is sort of like like Billie Eilish meets Joan Jett, sort of like it. Yeah, I could see it that. has a like, little bit of the wet. Doesn't remind me of Wet Leg a little bit too. Yes, yeah, Same for sure. Kind of the spoken singing hybrid. Uh, yeah, style, which I like. Like a, a punk rock, but all, but not fully punk rock. And and it's an interesting contrast to the Swaco song we listened to a couple weeks ago because it's only two minutes. And she did get popular on TikTok, but I think this song is a lot more complete than that song is. It feels like it goes more places in two minutes than that one did. Did, did you think that at all or, or no? Absolutely. That was one of my main notes is that some, it shows that you can uh, present a song in its fullest form in two minutes. It just depends on the arrangement and how it comes together. This one feels complete, but the Swaco song and some of the other ones we've discussed that have sort of become hits on TikTok first. Uh, more often that more often than not they feel somewhat incomplete. Yeah. And uh, this just shows that there's a way to have a song that's very concise, short, but that feels fully realized and this one is absolutely that because every section kind of builds the uh, the trajectory of the song or kind of builds the tension of the song and it never it doesn't feel like there's any like wasted moments. So it just it delivers right. in every section. It almost takes away, and I wanted to just give a little background of her, obviously, because we were talking about her. And I did a little, and she's had an enormous hit. And I went and I listened. Now I listen to all her songs. I've for the last three days, all I do is is like all her songs. And <laughs> I send them. I sent. Uh, I sent one to Val, my wife, and she was like, 
do you have to like every girl who sings like this? And I'm like, oh, well, yeah, I guess. It, it, there's a, a certain vibe style. I can, yeah. It's, yeah. What would you call I mean, it's sort of, there is kind of a punk rock element to it. I wouldn't call it yeah. punk rock per se, but it has like some of that swagger, some of that attitude. Yeah, I think in the Lord Billy Eilish, even Julie Michaels sings that way, sort of. Um, uh, but I, I anyway, I, I thought it was cool. But the, um, wait, what was I going to say? Oh, the song itself, it almost forgoes repeating the chorus a bunch of times. Like it forgoes catchiness to go more places in the song. Like there's more parts in the song. Most of the songs that are two minutes that are just trying to, not just trying to exploit TikTok, but one of the thoughts are this will be big on, t- be big on TikTok is, is like make, build this all around a chorus, have a great hook and you don't need that much else. But it seems like they sort of forgo that in this song to go to more places in the song, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. And that's what I think makes it feel complete, even though it is very short. Yeah. Sometimes if you're going to have, I mean, think about uh, the Beatles tunes. A lot of their songs would be two or two and a half minutes. Not even just the Beatles, a lot of early rock and roll. These songs were very short, Mm -hmm. but they would pack a lot in. You would have verse, pre-chorus, chorus, instrumental break, bridge, and it would all pack it into those two, two and a half minutes. And that's actually what this song does, because you have that sort of phonetic sing-along that comes in like maybe a minute, 15 seconds in, and that becomes like kind of a big payoff kind of moment. And you don't need a whole lot more after the kind of the na-na-na bit that she does. Yep. Uh, once it gets to that point, it kind of feels like it's ready to kind of hit the home stretch. And uh, it's a it's a credit to her. It's not easy to arrange a two minute song that feels uh, complete, you know. So I went back. So the the hit that she had last year it got to number three Billboard in the U.S. Believe it or not, number one Billboard worldwide was called. Oh, by the way, she's eighteen. So wow. th- that is more context. Also, to this. like Lord Billie Eilish, you know, yeah, breaking through at a very young age. Yeah, she she had a hit last year called A-B-C-D-E-F-U. Did you listen to that tune? I didn't listen to that one. I kind of, I only wanted to listen to this and kind of, I didn't want to have any preconceived notions of what this was. Now, they tell me that she's on tour with Taylor Swift. I'm like, wow. Okay. I thought it was maybe just something kind of cool, indie. No. <laughs> kind of release. No. So she was, um, the, the history of her is she was like a TikTok singer-songwriter that would do things on TikTok and that one day she was asking for suggestions of things to write a song about and somebody suggested that she write a song based on the alphabet, a love song based on the alphabet. And that person, uh, I'm trying to figure it out, ended up being uh, Cara Diaguardi, who was on... um, on, is an A.R. person for Atlantic who was oh, wow. on American Idol. And uh, she signed her, her name is, her full name is Taylor Gale Rutherford. So she was 17 when that happened. And she had an indie record deal at the time and then signed to uh, Atlantic. I, I think you should hear this song because the her being a star, I think is a little more obvious when you listen to this. Hate for the 
attention She only made it two days What a collection It's like you'd do anything For my affection You're going all about it In the worst ways That has the undeniable immediate hit quality. You know what I like about that? What's that? Uh, there's a great pre-chorus in that song. Yes, it, uh, there is. You get the verse, but there's that in-between B section before she hits the big hook. The da 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 And it, the great thing about a good like bridge is that it tells you the chorus is coming. Yeah, it, it alerts you. It gives yeah. you. It's the on-ramp to the bridge. I mean, And you get excited. You're like, ooh, it's gonna, because I've heard plenty of songs, like when I was in music radio, when they would play you the song and the bridge is there and you're like, ooh, here comes the hook and the hook doesn't deliver and you're a little bummed out at it. Yeah. But then the times like this where the hook does deliver is is pretty awesome. And she has, I think you can hear the Julia Michaels in her a little bit more on that one. She's got a, she's got two EPs out and there's so many like great tunes in there. So sing, so just not even a full length yet. Just, just no two full EPs. length, two EPs. Yeah. I mean, do you need, it's, it's just, we've come back to this conversation a number of times, but so she's hitting national international fame. Yeah. Do you really need an album anymore? I mean, I guess eventually if there's enough demand, you do, but I just see so many people just breaking on singles and then maybe an EP and then maybe somewhere in the in the process there's an album but it's just not it's it's like it's ironic because what we focus on is full album statements but it's sort of not what drives uh success anymore it seems certainly not at first you know like I th- I think the other thing is like as you're breaking the ability for you to keep giving people things when it, it like if they find her you know, rather than everything being there at once, every month or two being like, oh, here I have something else right. is a great way to like bring people along. And because she doesn't need to headline shows, though I, she, she uh, her biggest influence is Aretha Franklin, by the way. Like I read a oh, bunch of wow. interviews of hers. She mentioned Aretha Franklin and Julia Michaels, which I thought was- uh, I hear was, more Julia Michaels. I don't know if I hear the Aretha thing in her music, but maybe it's just as not Maybe I haven't heard enough yet. She is a fucking, like a really good singer. I, I went through YouTube and there's a song called, man, what's it called? Uh, I'm trying to find it where she, uh, called Orange Peel, where she really fucking sings. Hypothesis, your part to see, to be with me. Send me like on the summer breeze. I'm gonna try for you, die for you. Put me in an octagonal fight for you. Cry for you, lie. Put me under oath anytime Wish that I could take this off Like an orange peel of all my thoughts Hide away, hide away Like she sings, sings And the other thing is like On stage the like she presents on stage the way these songs present like she she's there with a telecaster or a bass the whole time she's always playing guitar and she's got like the you know avril lavini sort of like rocker chick 
thing going on. But uh, but she's cool, man. I really like her. Like I, I feel like a weird as a mid forties dude being like these <laughs> these teeny bopper TikTok songs. But she's fucking cool. I love seeing young people, and uh, I love hearing like hit songs. And I I heard that song, and I was like, I was like, oh my god, she's awesome. And um, some artists just no matter what age, it it's it transcends all that. If there's something undeniable in it, and it and there definitely is with with Gail, like that's all that matters. That's that's the great thing about music is it's almost like you can take the superficial context out of something if it's immediate and if it's undeniable and it has something to say. It's it's sort of the rest of it is almost irrelevant. Like these songs are just really well written, mm-hmm. and the performances are just undeniable. What I like about her actually, on some level, at least on the song on Everybody Hates Me, is. It's this combination of being self-deprecating but having swagger. Yes. As you discuss how self-deprecating you are. Yeah. I kind of like that. <laughs> I think I've heard that a few times now. That's kind of a, a a trend I've seen with some of the hits that are coming out now. It's like you're kind of trashing yourself, but you're doing it with attitude. You know. Yeah. And uh, it, it works. There's something compelling about that. Yeah. There's a song she has called "You're Just Horny." That is like basically like like you don't want to be friends with me. You just want to see me naked again. And like it is like it is a post breakup, you know, like kind of on one end self deprecating in that you know you don't really want to be my friend. On the other hand, she is aware of it and singing about it, so it is like empowering in the same way. And I think uh, that's what people respond to sometimes. People respond to that type of directness and honesty and vulnerability. And if you can do it in a way that feels genuine and honest and and is just sort of you know not trying to veil anything, I think people respond to that whether they whether they know it consciously or not. Sometimes people just react to something that feels like authentic. Mhm. Yeah, for sure. So, check her out. She is opening for I was like, when I heard that one song, I was like, oh, maybe we'll get her on the pod. And then I was like, I, I Googled and uh, I actually texted our friend, Jason Lipschitz from Billboard about her. And when I woke up and I listened to it, all caps, I text him, who <laughs> is this Gale character? This is at, I think, 5.30 in the morning, I texted him, poor Jason. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, I'm seeing her tonight opening for Taylor Swift in Arizona. And I was like, Missed our chance. Okay. All right. Yeah. I got it. Well, you, be, never, yeah. you never know. Maybe it'll still happen. But yeah, yeah. she's already in the big time. So yeah. Yeah. So uh, congrats, Gail. Thanks, Gail. So why don't we go to, you want to go to Stereophonics? Let's yeah. Let's go to Stereophonics. Yeah. Let's do that one. This is the listener. Mm-hmm. This okay. is from Angela. Thank you, Angela. Yes. Great, great selection. wasn't previously familiar with this record, but um, very familiar with Stereophonics. Are you, are you a fan of theirs, or were you familiar? Was not familiar. Was only familiar with the name, so this was the first time I had ever listened to them. Boy, is it good. Holy Great smokes. record. Yeah. Great, great selection. I've never really done a full deep dive into their catalog, but I've been aware of them for a long time. 
one of those bands that whenever I hear something of theirs, uh, or whenever I've heard something of theirs, I've always liked it. And we'll get to it in a second, but there's a song they have called Maybe Tomorrow. It's probably one of their biggest hits, okay. which is one of my all-time favorite tracks. Maybe we should add that as a bonus cut okay. to the record. But I just give a little backdrop on Stereophonics. Formed in 1992 in Kwamman, Wales. I guess it's a small town in Wales. Okay. So they're a Welsh band. And the band is Kelly Jones on lead vocals, guitar, keyboards, piano. Richard Jones on bass, guitar, harmonica, and backing vocals. And they're the two original members that have been there from day one. The current uh, rhythm section or current additional musicians are Adams and Donnie on guitar and backing vocals and Jamie Morrison on drums and percussion. The original drummer was Stuart Cable from 1992 to 2003, sadly passed away in 2010. And Javier Weiler was a drummer before Jamie Morrison took over. But for the most part, the real focal point of this man, the sort of musical mastermind, is Kelly Jones. I mean, this is, he's the driving force behind it as the lead singer, primary songwriter, producer. Uh, so this is really, these records really follow his musical vision. Now, they originally formed as a teenage cover band called Tragic Love Company. And in those days, great, great, great name for a band. Absolutely, 100%. Amazing, great name. Great name. Yeah. And early on in those days, they were often compared to Manic Street Preachers, who's another legendary uh, Britpop band. Eventually, they found their own sound. They changed their name to Stereophonics, and they were one of the first bands that signed to Richard Branson's V2 Records in the summer of 96. So they were kind of one of the bands that that label was launched with. Straight away, they began releasing a series of singles, including tracks like Looks Like Chaplin and Trafficked, amongst others. And over that course of the late 90s, early 2000s, they became, they were quite prolific and they became sort of a perennial on the UK singles charts. And if you look at their career, they sort of rode that tail end of the 90s Britpop boom. They weren't there right at the peak of it, but they were kind of there at the end of it. And you can hear that Britpop influence in their music, but it, they've definitely transcended that. They've gotten well beyond that. You hear elements of it, but there's much more going on to the music than you would say you're kind of like garden variety Britpop band. Yeah. Now, Kelly Jones, again, he's really the, the sort of musical mastermind here. In my opinion, he's proven himself to be one of the more distinctive and consistent lead singer, songwriters, slash producer to have come out of that time because... They have been remarkably prolific. Now, their fourth album was a record called You Gotta Get There to Come Back. And that's the album that featured the song Maybe Tomorrow, which is one of my favorite tunes. I would say it's the sort of the quintessential soulful rock song because there's a soulfulness to the way he sings. I find my way. Yeah. It's rock music, but it's there's a there's a blues and an R&B influence somewhere in there as well. As far as that tune in particular, it's one of those immediately memorable hooks. There's just this grittiness, this almost sort of like weariness in Kelly Jones' voice. It's just really impactful. And the production is one of the, when you listen, especially when you put on the headphones, it's one of those tunes that it's just like a perfect mix. I mean, everything is perfectly balanced. It gives you that dimensional sound that a really good mix can do. And there's one element in that production in particular that I think really puts it over, talk, over the top. There's this one background vocal that's pretty much there wall to wall and it hangs on the same melody. 
And then the lead vocal, all the instruments kind of weave around that. It's just a, I guess you're not familiar with this one. Have you heard this no. one? Yeah. So it's no. a, let's add it on as a bonus because to me that's a really a special song. All in all, they've released 12 albums throughout their career, including last year's Uchia. I guess it's Uchia with an exclamation. <laughs> I, uh, I'm sure there's a story behind that, but uh, it's an interesting album title. Throughout their run, now this was their eighth album. Up until this point, just to show how consistent and steady their output has been, this was their eighth album, and this was the first album going back to their debut where they took longer than two years to release a new record after the previous one. Okay. So every few, for the first seven records, every few years, there another record, another record, stream of singles. Then this one came in 2013, and uh, like we were saying, this is just a great list and start to finish. It's incredible. And but, it really is hard to pin down what it is when you're listening to it. There are so many different times that you you hear something different in there and uh but in a incredibly cohesive way you know yeah yeah it's uh and there's quite a range to it yeah it's it's not you said you can't really pinpoint what the genre is even other than just the broader sort of rock i mean it's definitely song driven you can hear some of the Britpop influence but it's way more than that yeah so the album was produced by kelly jones and jim lowe and gives it just gives some of the personnel. Kelly Jones played lead, had lead vocals, guitar, keyboards, and did the orchestral arrangements on here. Richard Jones on bass guitar, Adam Zintani on guitar and backing vocals, and Javier Weiler on drums. Jim Lowe is a co-producer, also played keyboards, programming, orchestral arrangements, and they had Dave Arnold on the orchestral arrangements and Nicholas Dodd on the orchestration. Now the, the strings play a big role in some of these songs. I mean, it, it add they add this whole other dimension to the tracks, which I think absolutely would hold up without the string arrangements. Mm-hmm. For sure. The songs are there. Songs are there, but this, the strings add this additional sort of dimension to it production-wise. Now, the, this record reached number three on the UK album charts, and they did an extensive world tour behind it throughout UK, Ireland, Europe, US, Japan, and Australia. Now, when you look at the tour history for that tour... It's, you know, in the UK, they're an arena band. Mm. But, you know, when they come here to the States, they play clubs like a TLA, 930, Vic Theater, places like that, which that's an amazing level to be on. I mean, if you can sustain that uh, anywhere in the world, that 1,000 to 2,000 seat level, that's great. But it must be interesting for a band that is doing arenas. To come here and do that. Yeah, and, and yeah. maybe it's more fun in some ways. It might be more rewarding in some ways. But, uh, but I, I feel like there's a number of UK bands that are like that, that they're mm-hmm. huge over there. And they have a following here, but it's more on a club level. Actually, Gang of Youths, I mean, they're doing arenas in Australia, but you know, yep. here here they played the TLA. But still, it's a testament to the fact that they have a global audience, Stereophonics. And uh, it seems like whenever they want to, they can mount a successful tour. Depending on where they are, it's going to be either clubs or theaters or maybe arenas. So give a little hi- few highlights on this record. There's so many, so I'll just pick a few, and then I'm curious to hear your your kind of picks takes. Yeah, I, re- I really like this record, by the way. Like from the 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 instant it came on, I was just like, "Ooh, it hooks this you is in. good in so many ways." In. Yeah, no, it's all killer, no filler. I mean, yeah, it's ten tracks. So I love that. It's like you know, who, I'm sure they recorded more songs, but it mm-hmm. looks like they put the very best ones. We share the same sun. Yeah, we share the same sun Every day Yeah, we share 
excellent, excellent album opener. Yeah. At least in my perception of it, it's a song about trying to find connection and sort of move beyond a feeling of isolation, which I yeah. think is something that relates to a lot of people. Excellent arrangement. There's a sort of understated buildup and then a big payoff in the hook. I mean, they write great hooks. I think this song exemplifies Kelly Jones' ability to convey like both a combination of intensity but also a lot of nuance in his performances. And he's he's pretty versatile as a vocalist. When I think of his voice on Maybe Tomorrow, the song which came out about 10 years before that, and his singing here, if you A-B, like, and on that Maybe Tomorrow song, it's very gritty, very weathered. And here, there's actually more of a smoothness in his voice. Uh, you hear the grittiness at times, but he's got quite a range in how he can sort of go about different performances depending on the song, depending on the arrangement. When I hear this song, to me, I'm curious what you think of this. The production to me sounds somewhere between like an updated version of sort of that classic Britpop production, but I also hear some of the 90s alt-rock sound in it. It's it's somewhere, and again, it makes it hard to pinpoint, but it's it's somewhere in that musical spectrum. There's there's like an urgency. There's there's like a, an interesting combination of like urgency and atmosphere to this song that that does sort of like portend what the rest of the album is going to to be like. The thing that you're hearing in the 90s alternative that I described as is like, we talked about Sunny Day Real Estate. We did Diary, I think, right? Did we do that record? I th- you've mentioned them so many times, but I can't remember if we did the it's record. It's funny. No, I'm, I'm not sure that we have. Wow, have we not done Sunday? I'm going to look at our album index to Maybe see. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we have. We've done a lot of, it's a lot of records at this point. Yeah, but I'm certainly not. Uh, blaming you for not remembering. <laughs> if we did, after, it was probably early on. After two years of, uh, we did, we did Diary. Okay. It, 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 they were they were like a Sunny Day Real Estate, well, they're back together, I, I guess, at least for the time being, but like a combination of prog rock and emo at the same time and created just sort of like a... Uh, but but that's what it reminded me of, and they are they are a quintessential '90s band without being one of the quintessential '90s bands that you normally think about. Like they're not the Pumpkins, and they're not Husker Du, and they're not Nirvana or Pearl Jam or Soundgarden. But they um, hold a lot of what is the '90s in their music, and that's what I heard. But same time, just I think probably a different reference point than you had. Yeah, it's sort of it's it's it, I think it's a little hazy to, to try to say well what what can you compare it to but there's right. some thread there musically mm-hmm. another highlight is a title track a great uh, bluesy performance from Kelly Jones on that one. Now that track has that thing that you were mentioning, this sort of like atmosphere, this sort of vast kind of sonic sweep to it, yep. uh, because you really have the full orchestra on that one kind of driving the production. Mm-hmm. And on this song on others, it just adds an additional level of sort of emotion, heaviness, kind of a weight to the song. But what I like about it is kind of what we were talking about earlier, it's a big sound, but it never overpowers the song or the vocal performance. Yep. And I think it's just a testament to how well-produced and arranged these tracks are because you could strip everything away. You could just you know, hear this song with just Kelly Jones on voice and guitar 
and it would work. It holds up undeniably well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I agree. That it is a great tune as well. And one other highlight I'll mention, because a little more on the rock inside was Catacomb. I didn't have that one. Cool. That's a little bit of a... Did you have any of these? Or, or we? I had uh, the. I had. We share the same song. Okay, that's good. Only yeah. one out of three. That's mm-hmm. good. That's good. Yeah. So Catacomb comes about midway through. It's a little bit of their like heavier rock side. You know, the, the hook on that one, at reminded me a little bit of Allison Chain. Something about the inflection in his voice and the melody on that one, and then the guitar riffs almost channel a little bit of a sort of a Sabbath kind of thing. Mm. And there's this great extended guitar outro on that one, which uh, I think this song just shows their versatility. Um, a lot of the pro- songs, productions are very, you know, more melodic pop rock music, uh, but they can clearly rock out too. And they have that edgier side of what they do. And I think that sound also suits Kelly Jones' voice very well, just shows his versatility. So just an album that I think, like we've been saying, great start to finish. I think Kelly Jones is one of the most soulful singer rock, rock singers out there today and uh i like that it can feel it can feel vast and very you know there can be a high production aesthetic to this record but then you have a moment like been caught cheating which comes towards the end uh which is just a sort of intimate acoustic bluesy thing and it can it runs the whole gamut uh and just just a very dynamic listen all the way through yeah i actually so it's funny to me. I'm like, oh, I hear the gaslight anthem, which means that I guess I'm hearing Bruce Springsteen at at certain points. But <laughs> the Indian Summer was a, a song that I that I latched onto as sort of having that familiar sound to me that I enjoyed. It almost had like a uh, like I could hear the killers coming from this band. from Stereophonics, even though this album came out in 2013, like I hear a lot of the same things, which I is the same world of music as Bruce and, and Gaslight and all that kind of stuff. But I heard that in there and just a, that song, a great sense for like a great hook and creating an atmosphere. I also had, this was a, an influence that, or not an influence, but a sound that we hadn't mentioned. There's a song called uh, Take Me. which really kind of like had an ominous Depeche Mode 80s postmodern yes, feel to it. That. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it was a vibe that I didn't expect and almost almost made me feel like it was a soundtrack song to the Lost Boys or something like I could I could hear the Lost Boys for anyone 
to young is a vampire movie from the uh, late eighties or whatever, early nineties. But is the Corys it, are the Corys. In the that? Corys are in it. So is Kiefer Sutherland. It's a great fucking movie. I haven't Just seen an, it. I still haven't seen it. You've never seen it. Lost Boys? I have to watch it. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's come up yeah. before. I always mean to, and I never get to it. Oh, it's a great, great fucking movie. A fun soundtrack as well. But a, not an awesome soundtrack, but a fun soundtrack as well. And it reminded me of that. And then the other one I had was Being Caught Cheating, which is just like this unexpected little yeah. blues <laughs> ballad at the end. just pain painfully honest lyric writing and a, an incredibly straightforward written song but a, a really nice song toward like to to you know start the the back third of the record just a well-placed song and an unexpected song in a um you could it honestly hearing the blues in that song allows you to hear the blues in the rest of the album in some way yeah absolutely yeah, I love that. We talked about it with some of the hair metal bands, like Cinderella. Yeah. Like the moment I could hear just a few elements of that there's, oh, I hear the blues in this. Yeah. It suddenly just connects to me so much more, resonates with me so much more. And uh, that's kind of what that song did on this record. You hear it in his singing. It's always there. Yeah. But uh, to actually hear him do something that goes more full on, and it's very direct yep. in that in that direction, it just... It, it it's such a great listen because I love how it's sequenced. I mean, it never. It feels like they put time and care and thought into how this record, you know, plays. You know, because it 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 has all these really nice musical pivots and it never stays in one place too long, and uh, it doesn't wear out its welcome either. It's probably with ten songs, about forty minutes, something like that. Uh, I, I love that being concise. I think I would so much rather hear ten songs that all feel undeniably great all the way through. Then a record that has 15, and inevitably you have those few songs that kind of drag, which uh, there was a lot of that in the 90s. Yep. And even in the 2000s, the CDs era, because people just want to pack on as much as they could. So that's one thing about the streaming era I would say is good. It's actually forced people to be more concise and kind of to make every song, every moment count. It, which is interesting because it, there's endless... It, it, it does two things. Like there's endless time. You can make your album as long as you want. Right. You, you could have the album be five and a half hours if you want, but you're in this ecosystem where everybody is competing for the time. So if you start to waste it, it's an opportunity to go away. So the, the, I think the natural inclination would be, oh, we can have an album as long as we want. Right. You know, there's no production costs. We don't have to worry about sending it to everyone. Like we don't have to stop at all. But then you realize that you are the most valuable part that is time. Like, Absolutely. you know, you can't make more of that. There's no record label that can give you more time. They can give you more money. They can give you more distribution, but they can't give people more time. And that's the challenge because there is so much content, so much music out there now that you're competing with. I mean, I even just think about all the films and television shows on the streaming channels. I mean, there are movies and even shows with A-list stars that I've never heard of. Yeah. You, you know, and it's the same thing with music. I mean, it's almost, it's it's forced everything to become very niche with the exception of like the Taylor Swifts of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, you're, that's a great point that 
the competition for people's time forces people to be very focused in, yep. in their presentation. Time is non-negotiable, is 100% non-negotiable. Great suggestion. So yes, thank you, did. Angela, for sending that in. I've gone back and forth as to whether I wanted to do a 30 Seconds to Mars album. <laughs> because I really like 30 Seconds to Mars, but I feel like Andrew Unterberger of Billboard has stained me in his disrespect <laughs> of Jared Leto and 30 Seconds to Mars and an old writes Ricky Sanchez argument where he got mad at me for suggesting Jared Leto was multi-talented. I mean, is. isn't that, that, that that's self-evident to me. Well, that was my point to him is like, this is undebatable. And he said, there are so many other people you could choose from. And I was like, there's so many other actors who have failed at music. And this guy specifically did not fail. He headlined amphitheaters. Like he had a platinum album. Like he had a number two number one hits like anyway that's the, well that's the thought i had i i thought to myself a lot of actors their music careers are like vanity projects like kevin bacon bruce willis there's like so there's many. a so long many. and no offense to any of them i'm sure they love them and they can be good but there's a lot of them that are just hey i do this on the side for fun right and this yeah. feels like it would be a successful project whether or not jared leto was a famous actor or not i think so um so 30 seconds to mars this is war which is their third album, which came out in 2010. Right now, Jared at 30 Seconds to Mars is just Jared and Shannon Leto. For this album, officially, there was Jared, Shannon, and Tomo, who was in the band as well. They've had a couple other guys in, in and out. But at this point, it's been, uh, I think, a while since they've been super active. They've put out song here or there, but it's been a, a while. 30 Seconds to Mars, I think you could describe as rock music that has a touch of prog in there, a touch of emo, a touch of 80s postmodern, a touch of stadium rock. There's a lot of different elements in there. If you are a detractor, you could argue you could say that they're like that makes them fake, but it is what I what I enjoy about them. I think they write great songs and when I've seen them, which has been quite a few times, Jared Leto is a good front man and a good singer. Uh, Sharon and Jared are, are brothers and they played and wrote music together when they were younger. And then they, you know, the nineties, they got other artists together and created 30, the 30 seconds to Mars project. They got signed to Immortal Records, which later became a part of Virgin EMI in 98. And then their self-titled album, which was their, 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 their debut self-titled album was produced by Bob Ezrin, which is a, you know, quite a producer to have for your, you know. Your, Pretty big time, big name yeah. producer. Yeah. yeah, for the debut. That was mm -hmm. For the debut. And their lead single, single was a song called Capricorn. Now...
I was in rock radio at the time and I was hosting a new music show and the label offered up Jared Leto for a phone interview and said, the only rule is you're not allowed to talk about his acting, no acting questions. And he did that for the entirety of the first album cycle. There are no acting questions. Now for me, it did not matter because I just didn't, I was doing a new music show. I didn't really care about the acting. It just didn't. But I think the, the goal was to not trick people or, or, you know, having a show to have him on just to talk about the acting and say, oh, the, oh, by the way, he has a band. So I had him on. And then later when he played the, they played the Kyber. So I thought I saw 30 seconds tomorrow's at the Kyber the first time they came through Philly, which I don't even think has bands anymore. Right. So this was YSP. This was your first uh, yeah. time around at YSP. Yeah, this was my first time around at YSP. I hosted a new music show on weekends called Exposed. So we had Thirty Seconds to Mars in. They did a couple of songs acoustic, and then I saw him at the Kyber that night. And I remember seeing him at the Kyber and being like, "Man, he can fucking wail," <laughs> you know. And even then, they had they've done like this interesting job. Of, they had an aesthetic. Like their aesthetic was space vampire or something, you know, <laughs> like if, if you take Alkaline Trio and add, you know, space and philosophy and all this, like they, they definitely had a specific aesthetic they were going for and, and have at every step really sort of catered to, while being popular on a mass scale, sort of catered to super fans in, in different ways. So that album is like moderately successful, sells 100,000 records, and then they went and recorded A Beautiful Lie, which is their second album, which really launched them into stardom and was produced by Josh Abraham, who also produced Kelly Clarkson, Justin Bieber, Sugar Ray, Alkaline Trio. A lot of big pop uh, credits. Yeah. Now, now, Alkaline Trio is a, a band I just referenced, is a punk band, and then he did produce Slayer as well. And the first single was a song called Attack, which did pretty well. But then it was the kill, which did it, which we talked about in our video episode. I was going to ask ago. you what the Kubrick. It was the Kubrick uh, video concept, right? It was the Shining one. That song ended up being the longest charting song at the time on at the history, the history of alternative radio was on the charts for 50 weeks, never hit number one, hit number three. But one of the reasons that it was such a slow build is that it, 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 one of the reasons it stuck around is because it was such a slow build. It, it did not jump on the charts as like, this is a hit. And when you listen to it, it's catchy, it gets in your head, but it, the hook does not smash you in the face in any way. And the video gave it like this extra life. Um, and that album ended up going platinum. And then from yesterday ended up being a, uh, a big hit as well. And um, at that time, pretty interesting thing. They got in a war with Virgin 
EMI. And if there are two movies I can recommend about wars with record labels, artists, it is the one that 30 Seconds to Mars did, which is called Artifact. They did a documentary about them trying to get, and it's self-serving. It is a self-serving from their perspective documentary, but it's, it's definitely interesting. And then there is also one, um, I want to make sure. Didn't Wilco what make one? What's that? Was I never saw the Wilco one, um, but there's one by Hanson called Strong Enough to Break about them trying to get off of Island Def Jam. Just like not a band that you would expect would be in a war with a record label, but <laughs> definitely but. not. But they, when you look at their career, uh, if you know more than just kind of the general, mm-hmm. like overarching overview of their career, like I got to introduce them more so because we talked about them and and then just sort of seeing their trajectory, they're kind of like a grassroots band. And I mean, yeah. that's weird to say because they had the big hits, but they're a band that seems to have sustained themselves mainly on tour. Yeah, well, they haven't had a hit in, you know, like 25 years or what, or 20 years or whatever. And they're still putting out records and touring and all the, and have a successful business. It has to be grassroots at that point, you know, on their own record label. Um, so, so I, Artifact is interesting. Uh, Virgin actually tried to sue them for $30 million for breach of contract that because they had signed, I guess, uh, I don't want to get into the legal details. It's worth watching Artifact, but they had only done three of the five albums that they said they were, they, that they were contracted to do. But there's a California law that basically like has a, like a, a length of time that you're allowed to keep somebody under contract, no matter how many albums they said they would, um, they would get. So, the 30 Seconds to Mars actually wins the lawsuit and separates from EMI and then signs another record contract with EMI immediately <laughs> afterwards, which I imagine the terms were just more favorable to them and they, they ended up going with them. So I mentioned, so I love this album, even though this album is way over the top in what it's trying to do. Like it is, I, this isn't an album that I would tell you, hey, the, the lyrics are, you know, poetic and, and but but it accomplishes everything it's trying to do I, I think like sonically it is a really cool big sounding album that combines all of those different aspects of music that I that I mentioned I think there are probably four or five songs in here which are like impeccably written from a pop song perspective with just giant hooks and I think it's like interesting they and I, I did mention them leaning into the fan base thing. So they did two things. One, they did this thing in LA where they got 2000 fans together and had them record vocal parts all together that they use in the album, which is on the the opening track or whatever. You hear like a chorus of, of fans singing and that was something they did. And they did another thing where they put out 2000 different versions of the album cover with fans photos on them. So if you were a fan, you could submit a picture of your face and then you would be on an album cover that would be distributed. And like, I think part of the goal was to try to get people to try to find their own album cover. Smart uh, marketing uh, strategy. (laughs) Yeah. I do have my face on one of them. Oh really? You're one of the 2000. Yeah. I, I do not, have it. Um, now at the time, the other thing that you should know about Jared Leto is that like, he is a very, is a, has always been very nice to me, but like is a very good 
relationship guy within the industry. And he would reach out to program directors himself and keep that. So instead of just relying on his record label to do it, he would have relationships with program directors all across the country. Like when he showed up in Chicago, I knew he was in Chicago. And I got a note from Jared saying he was in Chicago. And, but he, he did that with everyone. And I think it, I think it's super smart, you know, to have that sort of relationship if you can do it. Absolutely. Um, that The business is all that. And at the end of the day, the programmers care about the music and the artist. I mean, I yeah, understand sure. there's label promo guys and independent promo people and, you know, but uh, why not? I mean, why not have the direct relationship if you can have it? And yeah. I don't think any programmer would say, no, I'm going to talk to your promo person. No, Jared Leto's f- fucking cool. It's cool to know Jared Leto. I mean, like that's, especially if he's being cool. So I have, so it's funny. Somebody found my album cover. A friend of mine in Chicago was dating a guy, tattoo artist named Jason, if you're hearing this. Jason found and bought the album cover in Chicago for me. They broke up. I never got the album cover. Oh, man. Wow. So I've never seen it. <laughs> so, but it's out there in the universe. It is out there. So it, this album ended up with two number one songs. Kings and Queens was the lead single. which is just a, a tr- an over-the-top arena rock-like song with a, a big hook, and I love it. I'll, I'll just do a couple more real quick. I've, I know uh, Night of the Hunter. Is another song, two by for the way. Two so far. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's such a. It's Those are the undeniable such, songs. I mean, uh, they they stand out. You know, dude, it, it has such a like. I love the big drums, like almost Tool esque, Chevelle esque. Like the bass drum is so full and big, but even like that song has such a late eighties, early nineties, like um, I think sort of postmodern feel to it night of the hunter which by the way is another song that could be on the lost boy soundtrack uh you enjoyed those songs as well both of them. yeah both night of the hunter in particular i love the arrangement of that song because there's that sort of nice change up that comes on the bridge they take their time with their arrangements they, they have like extended intros mm-hmm. and there's almost always some kind of bridge section uh there it's a big hook obviously but the the record kind of quiets down for a moment and he kind of vamps on those lines of honest to God, I'll break your heart, tear you to pieces and rip you apart. But it's interesting because it's a mellower section of the song. Yeah. And yep. it's kind of like the other tune we talked about, the Gale song. You yep. know that's a ramp up to something. Yep. To yep. the big, big chorus payoff at the end. And I, I love I love that they take their time with the arrangements because there's so much it's so grandiose, it's so over the top that it makes sense to do that because each section kind of builds the anticipation for the next section and it feels arena ready. They are, this is like arena rock music. They, 
like it's an obviously meticulously put together album and and their music is meticulously put together and that can go one of two ways right like i a great example of being too meticulous is chinese democracy and then you you work on an album too much and you try to make it too perfect and you ruin it and you like you 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 can't you can't stop because you can always go back and fix this and fix that there has to be a point at which it's done right. it's really done and these songs feel meticulously put together, but also awesome, you know, I, I think. Um, the two others that have always been my favorite on this album, not, the, Hurricane is not, like, her, so Hurricane, he worked on with Brandon Flowers and has Kanye in it. I've never, I was never a big Hurricane The Kanye, uh, the auto-tune Kanye. Yeah, yeah, auto-tune. This was the ear of auto-tune Kanye. The other two I like is, which are, are really similar songs I think are This Is War and Closer to the Edge um, This Is War Again, an over-the-top arena rock song with a, a great hook. And I, the chorus, again, is not... I would not enter it into any poetry competitions, but <laughs> uh, I do believe in the light. Raise your hands to the sky. The fight is done. The war is won. Lift your hands toward the sun is a is an awesome stadium it's song. It's anthemic. You know? It feels yeah. anthemic. Yep. And Closer to the Edge, I think, actually might be my favorite song they've ever written. just think it's a it's a well-written pop song and it has a lot of killers vibes to it i think if you took away some of the crunchier guitars but those the, those were my favorites on the record the intro track escape is pretty yes. powerful too when i heard that my thought was well is this a concept album because it yeah. plays is this a concept album? i guess it isn't really well i i think if you if you were to go into interviews i think you would hear Jared Leto say that every album they've done has been a concept There's album on some level. Yeah. yeah. And I don't think he's, I don't think he's saying that just to be, just to sound smarter or whatever. I think he, I think they go into every record with a concept record does not always have to mean telling a story. Right. And I think sometimes we think that a concept record means telling a story. I think sometimes it could mean there is a theme that is overarching between all of these that they tie to one central point or a central idea, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's Operation Mindcrime or Tommy, you know, which tell stories. And is this, do you think the concept of this is their battle with the uh, label? That this I, is but that's when it was written, you so know? It so it like it has to be, this the, is the, war. And that's what you get in some of the songs, I think. Yeah, the fight is done, the war is won, and that's when the album comes out, you know? Right, there's a triumphant sort of... Uh, we did it kind of yeah. kind of attitude to it. Yep. W one other tune that I liked that was different than most of the other tracks was uh, 
Hundred Sons, which is sort of just like a short acoustic. Yeah. Now, is that at a show? I believe in nothing. One hundred suns until we part. I believe in nothing. Not in sin, not in God. I believe in nothing. Not in peace, not in or is that the crowd that they had sing along with them? That's the crowd that, that they had sing along at the, the, I forget, was it at the Palladium? I forget where it was, but that was the crowd. And then that element of those chorus vocals mm-hmm. that you hear a number of times, I think, throughout, uh, like on Vox Populi, you hear that. You know, you hear the chorus vocals at the top say, this is a call to arms, gather soldiers, time to go to war. Like the, the, the chorus is singing that. I assume that's also from the same. Yep. So they they made, they involved their fans in the record. Like the fans, that chorus group singing is part of the sound of the album. And I yes. think that's, I love that. It just, I'm not sure I've heard that done in that way before where they actually engage the audience. It's It's like it could be at a live show that people mm-hmm. are just singing along like that. But they actually staged it and planned it. And that's one of my favorite aspects of the whole album that you hear, I don't know, probably four or five times at different moments, maybe more than that. And it actually is a defining aspect of the record. It it, it, it makes them distinctive because, you know, I can think of like uh, Pink Floyd, The Wall, you know, there's yep. things like that that you've heard, you've heard in other ways, but they actually made it part of like a featured aspect of the production. And uh, and it fits because this these are arena-ready songs. In the same way that The Killers... You hear their music, and it's like, yeah, this was written for the arena. This music was written for the arena. I almost can't picture it in a club. I mean, you've seen it in a club. So, how did when they played the Kyber? What was the? Uh... Well, it was different too. I mean, it was only the first album stuff, and I thought they they pulled it off well. Like I, I remember, it's funny. It was so long ago. I remember it was twenty years ago or whatever. Like it's like the twenty that album came out twenty years ago, which is pretty wild. I remember that performance being really good but i also have seen them at Lollapalooza, which was also you know very good which they also did quite well i thought they pulled off really well so i think they can do both they're they're playing the there's a like a sort of pop punk emo festival in vegas in october called the when we were young festival that they are playing but that's the only thing on the docket as of as of now it's got to be tough with thing. someone like Jared Leto to plan tours because he's got like a busy yeah. film career. So how do you, you know, I wonder how he navigates that. Well, when they when they recorded This Is War, like they had to do it all over the place because he was filming stuff at the time. And I think, I, I think it just depends on what he's choosing to do for the next couple of years. Because if they, if they want to, if they want to do an album cycle where they put out an album and do a tour, he can't act during that. You know, there's no acting during that. So I really think it's what he 
what he wants to do. And are they a band, I wonder, that could just put out a record and not tour behind it and it would still hit? Because I think they could. I just don't think financially it, it probably doesn't make any sense for them to do that because it's not like their album would do fine, but it's not like they would, you don't make enough money unless you're a huge pop star or whatever on streaming to now what they could do is I bet they would crush on vinyl and CDs and and merchandise the fuck out of it and maybe do a two month tour or something like that during the summer. What's a, it's a, it's a great listen all the way through. And even some, it was cool hearing some of the bonus tracks Oh, the yeah. deluxe edition because there were a couple songs that were that aren't on the record uh, that are just live those are actual live performances I believe yes like those are, correct yeah. Yeah. and they sound pretty good live I mean it's nice to kind of get a taste of what it is that they do live to see how the record translates to that setting oh it's funny I actually didn't listen to the bonus tracks because it's it's the only the only one on Spotify is the um, is the bonus version. And I'm normally so. the mindset, I want to hear the record as it was originally released. Yep. And there is that thing on Spotify, a lot of records, it's just only the deluxe version. But for whatever reason, I waited into those bonus tracks and I was like, uh, the Kanye thing is interesting to hear. Uh, it, it Like what he does works actually. It's almost this like auto-tune robotic. It's a cool tune. It was just never one of my favorites. It, like putting aside Kanye's, you know, <laughs> de-evolution into insanity. That's not yeah. really the, I'm not, I'm not saying I don't like it because of that. I just, it was never my favorite, just never my favorite tune. Well, I have very, I, I don't, I still feel that I generally just don't like auto-tune because I feel mm. like it, I understand that it's become an aesthetic thing Yeah, and that there is a musical component. Of, it's, it's actually a style and an approach you can utilize, but, uh, to me, it's like, you know, couldn't he just sing that without the auto-tune? I mean, the melody is there. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, I think like, to your point, that was his aesthetic for a while. Like, right. was it was it was used as a, you know, the same way that somebody would use distortion on a guitar or something. Like, they were, they were going for a certain sound, you know. Cher. Cher was the first one I remember that really... Yeah, believe. All in on the auto-tune. Oh, my God. It was... That was a... That song was a fucking massive hit believe oh, you know yeah. yeah that was the first that was the first one who used it on purpose like that i'm sure it had been used just to fix fix you know audio before you know fix somebody who didn't sing well but to use it purposely like that believe was the first one that i remember share one of a kind yeah. <laughs> yeah. so there you go 30 seconds to mars you should a you go fuck yourself oh. If you're listening to this. So he, he just not a fan at all. You know, I, I'm i not allowed. I, I guess I'm allowed on this one because he's voiced it on a podcast. But AU and Jason are typically not ever negative publicly about certain bands because of what their job is. Like they write for Billboard. It's not, right. it's not really what they do. I respect that. But man, they got some individually great guys. They've got some great music takes. They've got some very bad ones as well. <laughs> well, I guess I guess the thing is, if you cover enough music, you're going to run the whole gamut, right? Yeah, because yeah, they're constantly yeah. absorbing and writing about things. So, this was the thing I wanted to bring up. Do you have an extra ten minutes sure, at the end sure. of the pod? So I don't know if you saw, but the Cure are going on tour, and they decided they're doing a big tour and there was a whole Ticketmaster thing last week. The Cure decided to do $20 tickets for their tour. Very in-demand tour. 
and people had some problems as the Ticketmaster fees ended up being more than the tickets themselves. Robert Smith of The Cure went to Ticketmaster and got those people refunded part of their money, I think between five and $10, depending on your ticket afterwards. He publicly said it was unacceptable after doing a $20 a ticket tour because they have enough money, you know, that, that is not to, I think the Ticketmaster thing is generally more complicated than people want to guess because I think people's biggest problem is they can't get a ticket to a concert they want to go to. And that problem is not solved with Ticketmaster lowering their fees or getting rid of resale, right? Like Bruce Springsteen tickets are going to be hard to get. Taylor Swift tickets are going to be hard to get. The Cure tickets are going to be hard to get. If, if Ticketmaster is operating completely consumer positive in a, in a almost as a, if there were a 501c3, still more people would be upset than would be happy because they wouldn't get tickets. But it was just notable to me that you can make a difference if you choose to. Uh-huh. Is this coming back to Springsteen in some way? A little bit. I thought it was. I, I thought that's where we were going. And, I'm it, just and like, I get why. I get why you would go there. Well, because The Cure, there are only certain artists who are big enough to be in a position to say, to have enough influence and to say, I'm not counting anyone's money. This isn't me counting anyone's money. But, but also to say, this isn't right and I'm going to do something about it. And I just think it is interesting that somebody who their whole aesthetic is the everyman and doing fucking podcasts with Obama and standing up on stage like you're, you're a coal miner and, you know, like all of that shit. And then when the concert comes around and your tickets are $400 and being on the resale market for $5,000 and you're, you're selling tickets directly for resale to Ticketmaster and people call you on it, all of a sudden it's just like, ah, you know, here's a statement from my manager. And then the cure, Robert Smith himself was on social media saying, this is not acceptable. I'm going to do something about this. He personally took it upon himself to do that. And I saw some of what he posted online and yep. uh, he was unequivocal in demanding that something be done. Yes. And yeah. by the way, even the very first step, let's take the fees away, the fee situation away. He's just charging $20 for tickets, you know, like is a step toward now it's a complicated landscape, right? Because artists should be able to charge whatever the market will bear. And so many of them don't make money on recorded music anymore in the same way. So making money off of concerts is, and merchandise and those sorts of things are, are tantamount to surviving as a musician. But also there are certain people in certain situations who can make things better for everyone. And I just, I think it is notable who chooses to do so and who doesn't. I think what it exemplifies is that actually those bigger artists do have the power to do something. Yes. Uh, I think that's probably what what Robert, Robert Smith exposed is that, you know, from some artists who are the big, big names, the icons, you know, mm -hmm. we've heard this refrain, including from the boss, that's like, well, well, not much we can do, you know? Yep. But actually, as a big name artist, you are in that position of power. And yes. you can actually make certain demands that will move the needle in some way. Like you said, it's too complicated to resolve the situation all the way through or to 
completely change the structure of everything. Yeah. But you can actually, uh, you know, put some pressure on the, the, the gatekeepers of that whole structure, that whole ticketing structure, that whole part of the business to do something. Just make it as good as it could be. You know, right. we're, we're not we're not saying to make it to fix it. There's probably no fix, but is is there a, is there something that you can do that can benefit artists and the consumer that will not will will not put your life in jeopardy, and we could have a better way in the end. Especially, I just think it it is especially notable for artists who say that they care about those sorts of things, like. You have to act like you care about those sorts of things too, not just say you care about them. And you feel that um, the boss is sort of not not practicing what he preaches in a way, which is, I don't I, which think so. I think is is maybe fair because the reality is that if enough of those big names were to do what Robert Smith just did, it might actually force the system to change somewhat, right? Uh, because at some point, you know, people can say whatever about. Ticketmaster, it's that's a deep discussion. It's clearly a monopoly, you know. Yep. There's no question. And Pearl Jam took this fight to them 30 years ago, you know. But it's it's something that's flawed. I mean, anytime there's a monopoly and you have one organization cornering so much of the market, it's going to create problems. It's going to marginalize certain people, the consumer. It's going to marginalize certain artists and so on. But even so, even within this sort of monopolistic situation – that the concert business is in, the big part of the concert business, at the end of the day, the artists and the consumers are actually what matters the most. Yes. Uh, these are all in-between intermediary businesses that have been created, uh, y- you know, that are entrenched now. But if you had enough big-name artists making an issue out of this, then it could actually force some change, and it would actually signal to the consumers that there's something that can be done. Because I've heard a lot of like, well, oh well, you know. Yeah. It is what it is. That's kind of the general refrain. All of these instances from like Green Day who fought it and Pearl Jam who fought it, they came from a different time. Like when the internet was, that that messaging was harder to get out to lots of people at once. That the same system that could, that was causing this was related to like the message getting out. But I think- what it means is it can't be it can't be it can't be one large artist here and one large artist there like there has to be a unified front of people who are saying i know that our i know that financially this benefits me specifically but i can still benefit if if we all get together and say this is not acceptable anymore cuz the the the, the the like the combination of ticketmaster and live nation all, all those things together it is almost structured in a way that even those businesses would have to voluntarily take less money. Like they would have to voluntarily make less money to make this work. It's not going to, it's not natural. It's not how people are going to right. operate. In a capitalist it, system, that, that's never the mentality. It wouldn't make any sense for them to do so until, until it, like, you, you have to make it so it could theoretically cost them money to do it this way. And, and bad, like, this fucking 
people sitting at Congress and this is politicians too. It's like the Taylor Swift ticket thing happened and a bunch of politicians are like, let's talk about this in Congress one day and wave our finger at everyone and I'll tweet about how bad Ticketmaster is and then they all talk about it in Congress one day and then everybody forgets because nobody wants to solve anything. Right. You know, like, I'm sorry. I'm just like- Well, look what like, happened with Pearl Jam when they, there was a real groundswell behind what they did yep. in the 90s at the end of the day, the Justice Department just came back and said, no, we're not going to align ourselves with you right? and the consumer. Right. Uh, the, the other thing is that, yes, maybe in the short run, there is a profit, uh, there is a profit sort of decline. Mm-hmm. But in the long run, I'm not sure that's the case because uh, all this backlash, all this negative publicity ultimately alienates consumers. Yep. And actually, if you, in the long run, okay, maybe you take fewer profits in the short run. Maybe there is a decline in profits in the short run. But the amount of uh, success that they could have from a business standpoint, the amount of um, consumer brand loyalty they could create if they didn't do this in the long run might actually be greater from a profit standpoint down the road, maybe years down the road, if they did this now. It's like a sort mm-hmm. of a, do you look at it from the short term or do you look at it from the long term? If you look at it from the right. short term, yes, there's there's a hit to the profits. But in the long run, what you might gain in consumer loyalty and brand loyalty could mean a lot more. But of course, at this point, their brand is just toxic. So I, I don't know. Maybe it's like it can't be repaired. So why, why would they even try? Yeah. Well, people have short memories. You know, like, uh, who knows if, if you have to think if they were, if they made, if people were able to make a difference and this changed and people have to use Ticketmaster anyway, they would at least feel better about Ticketmaster. Like if you're in the app, let's say, I'm I'm not suggesting this, but let's say there was a 40% fee cut across the board from Ticketmaster. And the next time you bought tickets, Ticketmaster actually told you, this is what your old fee was, this is what your new fee was, 40% off. Make it like they're discounting it. You would notice, of you would course, feel better about it, you know? It, it'd be easy to do, but, but again, it's not going to happen naturally because it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense from a financial state standpoint from Ticketmaster, make it seem naturally. It just has to, it has to be, it has to start from somewhere else. And that you know? I think that mentality that that it won't change because they don't want to take a step backwards profits profit wise, which I guess from their business standpoint there's a lot of overhead. I get it, but that's a short sighted sort of mentality. The only reason, the only way they would be forced out of that short sighted mentality and kind of stay sort of dug into this idea of. of being okay with alienating consumers is if like 20 of the biggest artists, yeah, like McCartney, The Stones, uh, Taylor Swift, Springsteen, all these artists suddenly collectively together did something, mm-hmm. I guarantee you it would change. Then For those sure. things that you're talking about, those fees would be cut. It could all change, but it would, because they are the ecosystem. Those artists, as far as arena, stadium shows, they are the, it. They're the focal point of the whole thing. But uh, unless that happens, it won't change, and that's that's the sort of unfortunate side of this is that it, unless there's a collective push by the biggest names and they're willing to actually accept fewer profits for a time, and their teams are willing to accept fewer profits for a time, 
it's probably it's almost impossible to to really create any kind of paradigm shift. Well, I give credit to the Cure for doing what they did and whatever it was, and even just to charge. You know, Green Day did this one time where they just um, they just did a cheap ticket tour, and I don't think everyone has to do that all the time. And I um, certainly, again, you know, not counting on anyone else's livelihood, but I do think when a band does it, they should be it it should be noted that they did it, you know, and I, the, 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 the cure did that. And I think that is to be commended. It's you know? a sh- simple show of appreciation to the fans. Yeah. You know, which what's better than that? What's more important than that? You know? So yep. yeah, big, big props to uh, Robert Smith. Cause uh, he did not, he would not go quietly with that. I no, it was no. everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I love was, that. And the yeah. cure are, are a great band to begin with. So that makes me like them even more. Awesome, Ben. We did a cure album, right? Yeah. 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 Boys Don't Cry. All right. We will talk to you next time. Stay free, my goose. Mm.